All right, what is going on, Juvie listeners? We're back here with another Saturday Juvie episode. A big, great guest today in this episode. I'm sure you guys saw the title and the thumbnail. But before Josh lets you know who we're talking with, if you guys are listening on any of those good audio platforms, we're on track to hit a million listeners by the end of this year. Yep. But we can only do it with your help. So hit that download button. If you guys are watching on YouTube, on the road to 10,000 subscribers, subscribe, hit that like button, and send this to one of your friends. Yeah. Let's get started so, this. So today, guys... We are talking with someone who was previously the head of global digiting at market, uh, 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 head of global, sorry, the global head of digital marketing at Nike, Estee Order, Revl- and Revlon. Uh, she's now a creator with over 3.5 million followers, with Forbes dubbing her as the queen of Clubhouse. She works with creators such as Josh Richards, Bryce Hall, and many more. This is Swan Sit. How are you doing? I'm well, guys. How are you? Doing good. Great. Swan, I have to just preface this before. You are our hardest guest to track down. Oh, yeah. We've been in the talks for about <laughs> two to three weeks now. You guys, Swan is all over the place, all Very over busy. the globe. Where are you located right now? Currently in Cannes, France. Um, I was in London on Thursday filming at CNBC. Hopped down here to speak at the Duty Free uh, Travel Retail Universe about the metaverse and I fly to Hawaii tomorrow. So it's not for lack of trying. I love the Juvie podcast. It's just my schedule's insane and I'm really disorganized. <laughs> yeah. crazy. Also, quick shout out to Reed for making this happen. Reed is one of our friends that helped connect this episode to Swan. We're so excited to talk today. Yeah. Guys, we're going to be picking Swan's brain about her career, get her perspective on some Gen Z things. Yeah. But doing a little bit of research, background on you, you went to Harvard. So I'd love to start kind of from your childhood. Was Harvard always the goal? Was that something in mind or no? Oh, totally. I mean, my parents were immigrants. My parents didn't even finish middle school. So when they came to the States, no education, no money, the only thing they focused on was Harvard because they never heard of anything else. So thank God I got in, but um, it really created opportunities that we wouldn't have had. And I think nowadays, college is a different conversation. But when I went decades ago, that was the only path. There was no startups. There's no VC. So if you wanted to do well, you had to go to college. Today, I think it's a mixed bag. I think for some people, it's incredibly helpful. Some people, it's not. Yeah. yeah, totally. I would say, yeah, you know, we talk with a lot of entrepreneurs and you know the entrepreneur mindset is like, why would I spend a hundred grand on this? So for a teenager that maybe grew up in a household that college is the successful way to go, but they feel like I'm an entrepreneur by heart, this is what I love to do. How do you navigate that? I think you can be both. I think college serves a lot of different purposes. For me, it opened doors and a network that my parents as blue collar workers never had access to. So check, that's huge. But I also learned how to think. I also knew how to build relationships after going through and navigating the social circles. I'm an entrepreneur now after 20 years in not only college but the corporate world. Arguably, I wouldn't be as good at what I do now if I didn't do those things. So for me, not just because of the network and the doors it opened, but I needed to learn how to do. Now I'm a great entrepreneur, but arguably if I became an entrepreneur right out of college or right out of high school, I probably would have failed. I didn't have the skills. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, so from that, how did you end up building your business empire from like coming out of college? How long did it take you to be where you are now? Um, it took a couple decades. I mean, I want everyone to kind of be candid. You can also look in LinkedIn. I finished college in 2000, so it's been a while. And so that's why I think college is a, it's a, it's a case-by-case basis. For me, I went to Harvard. I got a few jobs in marketing. Then I went to business school at Columbia. Then I worked at Bain. 
Then I started this digital transformation journey at Estee Lauder, Elizabeth Arden, Revlon, and Nike, which is ultimately the bulk of my work. So for me, it was always climbing the corporate ladder, getting a bigger title, better job. And it's not for everyone, but for me, I needed that because with every job, I got another skill set. You know, I was seeing Estee Lauder at this conference today, and I worked there from 2010 to 15 when they were just starting to build e-commerce and social media. I didn't learn digital because I was using Snapchat. Back then, I learned it because I was helping brands build it. So I think it depends on the time and place, but for me, it was always making sure every time I took a new role, am I consist consistently learning? You may not love everything, but if it's adding to your skill set, it makes you stronger. No one wants to do research or you know read a P&L, but now if you can't read a P&L, there's no way you can be a good entrepreneur because you're gonna run, a money, run out of money really fast. So I always look at as long as I'm consistency, consistently learning, and if I do have a goal of suppose I wanna be a real estate mogul someday, well, I better understand how to read legal contracts. I probably need to understand a little bit about construction, etc. As long as you build different skills to get to your goal, I don't think you have to be so focused in the moment about is this my dream job forever and ever. It's am I learning something useful that will take me to the next level. So whether that's even the conversation about college, I needed college. I actually do think a lot of kids need college still. It's not the same type of college for everyone, right? So whether you go to liberal arts and you learn how to think whether you actually go to a two-year program and learn a skill set, whether you just go to an online university and learn how to code, it doesn't matter, but learning is lifelong. It's not, I got a degree and I checked the box and of course I got a six-figure salary. It's learning whether it's a new job or getting that other degree or that other certification. As long as you keep moving forward towards your goal, every piece Legos in until it's like a massive transformer. So you ask me how I got here today, yeah, I get to speak for a living. I don't even live anywhere. I live on the road. I go to three countries this week. Could I do that if I didn't help these countries build e-commerce? If I didn't do research for my consulting firm? If I didn't go in the trenches in factories in other countries to learn how to build products, I would be terrible. So I think, you know, as you think about where you want to go, talk to people who are there now and say, what were the building blocks to get me there? and then go kind of work backwards and how do you build those for yourself? Yeah. yeah, and I think we, you know, we talk with teenagers a lot and teenagers in this current day, we see so many young success, successful people so it almost puts a sense of pressure on us like I gotta get it figured out, this, that, that. And you know what we talk about a lot is try everything until one thing sticks and you find one thing that you really love and chase that thing. So it seems like you did that, you know, you're like college is the way to go right now. That's what makes sense right now. But now, you know, you're in a completely different field. Um, so your degree that you got in college, is that, do you feel like that's still beneficial to what you're doing today? Absolutely. I mean, my degree in college was economics, but it was first biochemistry. And Harvard's a liberal arts college. So people joke that it makes you really good at cocktail conversation, which is true because they don't teach you. Like an econ degree, I don't know how to do accounting, which was absurd to me back in the day. But these teach you how to think and solve problems. So Harvard was incredibly useful, but being consulting was even more useful because you're now you're on the ground with clients trying to figure out how to solve problems. And the only thing constant about business is that it changes and it's ambiguous. So it's not about knowing the answer to every problem, it's knowing how to solve the problems, right? Having a confidence, having a framework, having a network to call. So every time you decide to be an entrepreneur and hit another snag, how do you solve it? Because an entrepreneur doesn't do everything perfectly. An entrepreneur is measured by how quickly and effectively they solve problems. 
right? And so that's why I think it's super useful. So as you talk about, you know, what do we want to be when we grow up? You don't even have to exactly know because I don't know what I want to be when I grow up and I've been working for decades. It's ludicrous we ask five-year-old children, what do you want to be when you grow up? But I think if you can, to your point, if you find one thing you kind of like, I think of it in three ways. Find something that you like, something that you're good at, and something you can make money doing. If you can find the intersection of all three, you're golden. We're not gonna love our jobs every minute of every day, it's called a job. But if you're good at it, and you enjoy it, and you make money, you're luckier than most people. That's, yeah, that's true. It's a really good way to think about it. Um, kind of building off of that, I wanted to know, because you said you don't have a home, or, or you might have a home, but you don't live anywhere specific. Is it as glamorous as it seems traveling for work? Yes and no. I remember the first time I went on a business trip, it was like three months out of college. And I was so self-important. I was like, I put on a suit. I didn't even wear a suit to work, but I wore a suit on the plane because I, you know, and I was like, I have a business meeting to go to. Now I travel in sweats and look like a hobo because all I'm doing is catching up on sleep curled up next to the window. So yes and no, because in some ways you feel like you've hit this next level, that you're important enough that they need to put you on a plane to get you there because no one else can do it. So in some ways it's really gratifying. And oh my God, the places I've gotten to go, every country, every culture stretches me teaches me something new, makes me more empathetic, and it makes me also a better business person because I understand people better. And that way it's incredible. But I got two hours of sleep last night, three hours of sleep the night before, I sleep on airplanes a lot, and it can get really lonely. So I wouldn't trade it because I'm so fueled by people and curiosity and connection. But yeah, sometimes I'm exhausted, and sometimes you're sitting in your hotel by yourself ordering room service or Uber Eats, and you're like, wow, why am I doing this? But then I meet like, 30 people who walked up to me today that said thank you so much i learned so much and you remember why you do it yeah, yeah that's, really that's a good point. point you mentioned just when you first got flown out to your first business meeting you're like you're thinking like yeah i'm the only person can that can do this job is there ever a feeling of like a pressure because you know that you're replaceable in a sense by the way i thought i was like i'm so important they had to fly me out by the way i was super replaceable that's the thing about the corporate engine actually if you're a good leader you should build your team to be replaceable and that's not being a dick. That's actually thinking about if something happens where somebody decides to go on maternity leave or takes a better job, power to them, right? That's how I grow my teams. I want them to actually go on to better positions inside the company, outside of it. I'm going to lose people. If I'm a good manager, I'm supposed to actually promote them. Exactly right. So if that's the case, I have to think about when this position's vacated, then who backfills it? It can't be, oh my God, now I have to go train someone and three months later someone can do the job. So you should actually build your team to be replaceable. It's called bench strength. It's like having a deep bench in sports, right? Somebody gets injured. You have somebody else who can fill in for him. And if you don't, you're probably losing the game. Yeah, that's so, a pretty good point. I never thought way, about that before. Right? You need subs. And that's why we should. And not only do you build a better team, you now cross-pollinate your skills, your skills on your team. So if somebody's really good at research, but they hate public speaking, wouldn't it be great to give them a chance to learn that in a safe way as a backup? So as you think about your own skills, think about, yes, what you're good at, what you can make money at, and what you enjoy. But what are you not good at that's eventually going to be important for that job? And try it and learn it when it's safe, when it's a second part of your job, not the thing you're paid for, because if you fail, you get fired. Um, so if you think about it in that way, of course, there's a pressure to be replaceable. But that's still the same or less pressure, I would say, than an entrepreneur where it's all or nothing. Right. So it depends on which 
which type of pressure you do better with, but you should feel like you're replaceable because if not, then your job's probably like your boss isn't doing a great job of, of building bench strength. Think about coaches. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. point. And you were talking, you know, you mentioned how, um, oh, just lost my train of thought there. Go ahead. Go with the <laughs> next question. I was going to play off something she said. Um, I, so I wanted to know. So we've talked a little bit about the corporate that you've done. Um, I want to hear a little bit more about Clubhouse and your role in Clubhouse because according to Forbes, um, you've been dubbed the queen of Clubhouse. And I want to know what that means to you and also what your life on Clubhouse looks like. Well, remember two years ago, we were locked inside during the pandemic. This is when we were still like Lysoling our groceries and not going out. And I'm an extrovert. I get my energy from other people. And remember, I was living on the road. And all of a sudden, I was locked inside, bored and lonely. So my childhood best friend, this woman named Parl Singh, who's a VC, said, hey, there's this thing called Clubhouse. I mean, I got sent it. I have an invite. Why don't you jump on? You'd seem to like it. And what I loved about it is that I like talking to people. And it's a voice-only app. During the pandemic, none of us put real clothes on. So house party, which had video, was terrible because I'd have to put a face on and clothes on. I could be in my robe. And the way it was spread in the beginning where you got invites for friends, I was running into old friends and reconnecting and meeting some new ones. So I just started out hanging on, playing, catching up with people. It was a way to feel less lonely during the pandemic. But I also like helping people. I love mentoring. And a lot of people had said, well, I'm starting an e-commerce company. You've been doing it for 15 years. Can you give me some tips? And that snowballed. So up until now, my social media was private. I had no intention of being a creator. It kind of happened accidentally. But I joined in May of 2020. By December, I hit 100,000 followers. And I was like, oh, shoot, like, this is something. And remember, back then, it was still invite only. So it wasn't like it was open to billions of people yet. So when I hit 100,000 in seven months, I was like, there's something here. The way I help people, the way I connect could I actually do something with this? So then I started doing a weekly show and I started interviewing people that I was interested in because I'm naturally curious. So Floyd Mayweather, Paris Hilton, etc. We even had Edward Snowden on. I mean, that's mind blowing. And from those next five months, I went from a, right? Like in what world do we have Edward Snowden talking to us? Um, so from those next five months, I grew from 100,000 to 3 million. Wow. And it was mind-blowing because I just realized if I put people first, so five months. So the first seven months was 100,000, and then another five months, yeah, it hit 3 million. So in a year, I hit 3 million. Now, remember, we were all locked inside with nothing to do. You could not recreate that now. But the scale of which the platform grew and the time we were in. Now, remember, it's also voice only. There's something intimate about voice that gets people to bond. It's like stories around a campfire. So if it had been House Party or Instagram Live, it never would have happened. But something about voice, about how I like to connect with people, I like to amplify stories, and I like to help. I mean, it just stuck. So when you hit 3 million followers, what do you do? You freak out. You call your mentor, Gary V, and you're like, what do you do? And then they sign you, and now you're a content creator. So I'm so lucky to be able to get this as a job, right? But I didn't intend for it. So you talk about what do you want to be when you grow up? That job didn't even exist on tax forms when I was born, let alone be on my radar. And then once you're given the gift, what do you do? You step into it. Yeah. I just wanted to bounce back because my my train of thought came back. You were talking about how the time to take risks is when you're in more of a safety net. That's what we feel as teenagers. It's like we have one of the, you know, we have one of the biggest advantages in the game and that's time and we have time to take risks. So I'm 16 years old. It's feel like I could fail at this podcast for three more years. I would only be 19 years old and then I could start something else. Yeah. And I know, I know Gary talks about a lot and it's really cool. This is wild. You're 16. Wait, 
This is wild that you're 16. What was I doing when I was 16? I was like watching cartoons. Well, I, uh, but honestly, I feel like we, we're in a time where it's like we have the resources where you can start at 16. When you were 16, maybe that like it wasn't a thing. You couldn't go out with your friend and start a podcast yeah. and interview people like this. And that's something I wanted to men- like to tap yep. into. How do you feel like the time when you were growing up as a teenager is different than us growing up as teenagers today? Just you even asking that question shows how insightful you are and how your generation thinks of the world differently. So I always joke, I do this talk called Leadership for the Digital Age, and I explain why different generations behave differently. And it's because of the conditions they grew up in and what their parents went through. So when I was growing up, if you wanted a job, you would do a paper route or a lemonade stand. There's no one who gave you money, right? Like you imagine being like, 14 and walking to a bank and trying to fill out a loan. That was the only way to get money for your business. Now there's VCs, there's VCs investing in people that aren't even old enough to drive yet. So the times are different. And I sometimes encourage my teenage friends because, you know, I own a company with some teenage TikTokers and stuff like go easy on your parents and even on your friends because we didn't have those opportunities. Be in gratitude of that, but also learn from them because if they were able to make what they did of themselves with that little, what could you learn? using what they know, right? So I think if you think about the generations, right? Like, you know, they grew up, people, like my parents grew up in a time of war. So then when, you know, millennials were born, people were just like, oh my God, we're so grateful that it's peacetime, et cetera. So you're beautiful, you're perfect the way you are, we love you. So that's how millennials kind of got that entitled kind of um, reputation because their parents just came out of wartime and were so happy that there was no war going on and there's prosperity. But then you take that next generation who had Gen Z. And so while they were optimistic, they lived through the 2000 dot-com crash and the 2008 mortgage crisis, right when they were leaving school or as when they were new parents. So optimistic, but hey, don't be too optimistic. Cover your bases and work your butt off. So that's why Gen Z gets the great reputation of they're optimistic, but they're a little bit more grounded and they work a little harder. It's all a context of the time that we're in. So understanding that if you are in the corporate ladder working for someone in a different generation, remember what it was like when they grew up and have some sympathy because you want sympathy when pe- you, you don't want people to look at you as an entitled kid who only spends time on screens. So let's not do that to our boomers either. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's literally just understanding that there's a generational gap and they didn't grow up with the resources that we have yeah. now and vice versa. It's literally, we, we, we preach this on our show because our audience is literally just made up of Gen Z and it's just having a little bit of sympathy and understanding that there is a gap. As yeah. long as you understand that, it kind of changes your mindset and it's done that yeah. for me. Uh, yeah, I um I wanted to touch on something because we've, we've asked this to a lot of teenagers before, um like if their parents supported them from when they started, if they like understand what they're doing i wanted to know because it's more of a gap um did your parents were they like confused by what you wanted to do when you first started doing what you're doing now or did they kind of understand it well luckily i became an influencer or creator well into my 40s so by then they'd already given up on me had i told them when i was finishing harvard that i wanted to be i mean it didn't exist back then but if i wanted to be a social media content creator they would have probably locked me in my room the only options at the time were doctor or lawyer so luckily, I kind of found a spot in business, etc. Now they love it because they see the people I help. When I get messages from people on social saying, you inspired me to take a bold leap. You taught me this thing that makes me actually better at my job. They see that I get to help people. They're more than wildly happy about it. 
But it took them like, okay, she's got a couple years of, of, you know, professional achievement. If I wasn't, you know, Nike, Revlon, they probably would have been a little confused. But it's because they mean well. Because some of these jobs that we talk about have a really high failure rate. Entrepreneurs go bankrupt all the time. They lose, they fail. Um, Parents just want the best for themselves. Sometimes maybe it's a little tight-fisted, but for the most part, parents just want their kids to be happy and healthy and whole. And if they think they're doing something that's really risky, yes, it might make them happy, but if they can't eat, then that's a problem. So I sometimes tell people to go easy on their parents too. And it's that same generational gap. How, why can we talk to say, a, you know, like a mentor or a boss, but we can't talk to our own parents. So I think even just asking, why do you want me so badly to go to college? Why do you want me to be a doctor or a lawyer? They might just be like, we're afraid you'll have nothing to fall back on. There's something really noble about that. They raised you for 18 years. Of course, they don't want you to then go live in a basement and eat ramen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we talked about this just, uh, it was on another show a few weeks back. And the difference between instilling real self confidence and really just a parent that's afraid to see their kid fail. And luckily, you know, we grew up with parents that were okay with us failing because our parents are entrepreneurs. My dad was first generation over from Cuba. So they understand what failure looks like. And so we, we grew up with parents that, they they were okay with seeing us fail and that actually instilled like real self-confidence yeah it was like now that we're not afraid of falling back we actually will go forward and something that we see with like our peers and just our listeners is they're so afraid of it because growing up their parents uh praise them for little things but not things that really were going to boost them forward um so you're not a parent yourself but when looking at our generation how can parents instill a real sense of self-confidence into their kids I'm so glad you asked that question, and I'm impressed that your parents had the generosity of heart to let you guys fail, because most parents don't, and it's not a bad thing. They want their children to be happy and successful. Um, for me, because my parents, like I said, didn't have a lot, didn't even get to go to high school, let alone college, they just wanted the best for us. So they kept it so tight that for a long time, my most of my life until a few years ago, my entire identity and self-worth was based on achievement. And actually, you know, I can send this to you guys later. I actually guest wrote a chapter in my friend's book about doing things that scare you. And I sent this whole, like, it's probably only a couple hundred words, but my inner achievement monster grew with every accolade. Harvard, Columbia, two Ivy Leagues, Bain, Estee Lauder. I did all the right things. But then I got to my last job and I was grossly unhappy. It was supposed to be the best job in the world. I'd earned my seat at the table and I was miserable. So guess what happens when your entire self-worth is based on achievement and then you get to that achievement and it's terrible? You lose all sense of self. Forget even if it's not enjoyable. God forbid you fail at it. Then you have nothing to fall back on as your value as a human being. So what you guys are learning now, which is so valuable, I learned when I was 40 years old. Can you imagine the midlife crisis that comes with that? So that job that I didn't like, that I wasn't even good at, I left. And for three months, I didn't line up another job. I just sat with it because I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I always had a job lined up. I always had a next step. So three months, I just sat. And people would ask, what do you do? And I said, I don't know. And God, that felt terrible. And also on top of that, when you're at these big brands, people all want to be friends with you. And all of a sudden, you don't have access. You don't have products. You learn who your real friends are. So it's a double whammy because all the things I I was always like, I'm Swan and I'm the head of global digital marketing at Nike. Now I had nothing to say. That's already feeling crappy. Then a lot of people you thought that were your friends that don't take your calls anymore. 
it was the lowest of the low, but without doing that, I wouldn't have been rebuilt. Now, my self-worth is based on my purpose in life, which is to help people. And if I can still do that, democratize information and access, connect with amazing people like you guys, I'm fueled by something that achievement can't be taken away from. As long as I do it and it feels good, no one's going to measure how much money that made or how many views that got. My purpose is to help people. So now I'm happier than ever. I, by the way, work more hours than I ever have in my life, but it's fun and it's mine because there's a purpose. So I know that was sort of a long story, but it's an important one because I hope you guys don't wait till you're 40 years old to go through that type of trauma, to sit there and wonder, do I have a purpose on this earth? Who am I? Have those tough conversations with yourself, with the ones you love. Um, Take risks and fail because when you fail when you're younger, you're not setting back too much. Okay, so you drop back one position. If you fail when you're 40, it's hard to even get hired by other companies, you know? So figure that out earlier and gut check it as you go. Yeah, I think my, where I got that is like your happiness can't be reliant on other people. And I think that's that's really important. Yeah. Well, I've got... Um... Other people and fake achievements. Not fake achievements. I shouldn't say other people's achievements. Well, I've got one more real question and another kind of like jokey question before you wrap up. I have I have a quick fire. Okay, go for it. Yeah. So we have four questions. Quick fire. Top of your head. This is just perspective on Gen Z. How was working with Josh Richards and Bryce Hall on any energy change your perspective on Gen Z? Um, I've always thought that they are our future and I've always enjoyed their vision. So it actually only reaffirmed it that you guys have a really strong balance of work ethic and optimism that I want to be a part of. That's why I have friends that are 16 and friends that are 82. That's great. Yeah. I love it. Um, how do the people at your level of work think about Gen Z? Probably some of the traditional thoughts of they're a little entitled, they're spoiled, but they do think that they're optimistic and care about the world. So as long as you work hard and dispel the entitled piece, which, by the way, is a spillover from millennials. I don't think it's really there, but they do think that we do that you guys care about the earth and sustainability and footprint um, and they're kinder human beings. That's a great thing. Right, yeah. I love it. Do you feel there are any stereotypes, well, you kind of mentioned it, placed on the youth? If so, what are they? I think in addition to the ones I mentioned, the stereotypes are that um, they are all about experiences and they don't care about working hard or learning. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think we just want to create different ways of working and learning now. So I don't think when someone wants to do something a different way or try something completely zany, that it's that they don't care. We're just more adaptable to risk and new formats. The gig economy, creating your own type of job, building your own business. You know, I think um, sometimes that stereotype is misunderstood, but I know it comes from a better place. Right. Yeah. I love it. That's a great one. That's a good one. All right. You have a funny one to wrap it up or should I just close with our... I've got one question then kind of like a little right, side sure. one. Okay. This this will be my fi- final question because I feel like this is a really important one. Do you truly love what you do? God, yes. God, I would not work seven days a week if I didn't. Sleeping two, three hours a night is not healthy. Please don't do it. But I get so much energy, right? So, you know, one day I can be talking to Gen Z, like now, about college and how to think about your future. But literally 30 minutes ago, I was with old people in travel retail. Like, you know the duty-free stores? I'm trying to teach them. These people still aren't even convinced about e-commerce, let alone social media and the metaverse. And so I love helping people understand new possibilities. 
Um, I wouldn't do it if I didn't. Honestly, when I left the corporate world, I was sitting on public boards. It's what all these old white dudes do when they retire. Most people didn't t- don't talk about this, but public boards, there's people who govern at the top above the CEO. Four meetings a year, you get paid a salary. So that's what all these old white dudes did when they retired. No wonder we're, you know, they were getting paid so well. So I was doing that. And I'm 20 years younger. The average age is 63. So I'm much younger than the average person. I was chilling, having a good time. I don't need to be running all over the world. I don't need to sleep two, three hours a night. But today I helped two dramatically different audiences and I go to bed happy and fulfilled. That's great. Yeah, really that's good. And then my final little question before night comes to wrap up. <laughs> Could you get us a tour of the Nike headquarters? <laughs> I'll do my best. It's been a while since I've left, and obviously security is a lot tighter since the pandemic, etc. But here's the, here's the secret. You can go on campus. You just can't go inside the buildings. Like, I couldn't even get inside the Jordan building, right? I had to get to, So if you go to Beaverton, I can give you the address. You can tour the campus. You can see the sculptures. There's 80 buildings. It's beautiful. It's fun. You can still do that. And I believe, actually, I probably need to arrange it. I can probably get you into the Nike employee store, which you can shop at a discount. But in order to get inside the buildings, which, by the way, is just a lot of desks and conference rooms, you do need an official meeting. So let's circle back later and let's get you guys up to Beaverton. Oh, that would be amazing. All right. So the final wrap-up question we ask every single guest, and I would love to ask you on this. What do you think is the most misunderstood thing about teenagers today? That they only care about screen time and social media. I don't think screen time, all things are created equal. This is screen time, and I would argue this is one of the best moments of my day. So I think people are like, oh, they just care about social screen time. That's all they're doing. It's what are they doing on that screen time? Are they building a future world in Roblox? Are they learning to code? Are they building an e-commerce business? Are they mentoring a kid from Zambia? I think the most important thing is screen time doesn't mean wasting time. What are they doing with that screen time is a far better question to ask. That's, that's, that's a really good answer. answer. Yeah, and I think you know what we preach on our show is like people might look at Gen Z as entitled, but also it's it's put into perspective of like we just understand our options and those options yeah. have changed. It's like we know that yeah we can sit here. I do school fully online, so I can take opportunities like that. People will be like, oh, but they're not the social aspect. I'm like, I'm here talking to you. That's social to me. <laughs> yeah. It's about understanding that the options have ultimately changed, right? Right. And the irony is it's the people who accuse Gen Z of being entitled that are entitled for not seeing that, wow, you actually have to earn them working for you now. They don't have to work for you. They can go create whatever job they want. So you're the entitled one to think they're entitled to think that they have no options. Again, back to exactly what you said before. It's that generational gap and asking the questions to each other. Because I think from my unprofessional opinion, I think this generation right now it is the easiest to make money out of any other generation or decade, like ever. From your professional opinion, do you agree with that? 100%. Not just with access to VC money or loans like Angel or friends and family rounds. That wasn't a thing where you asked your relative for $5,000 towards your business. So access to capital, to money is easier. But the options, without the internet, what business would you start? If I told you you could not use the internet, you could only use the dial-up of a phone, what business would you start? really freaking hard, right? So the technology has now, right? You guys can go back to it. What would you do, right? We go back to paper routes and, and lemonade stands. So um, the technology has made it easy. So I don't, I don't resent that. I think it's amazing because it's made me better at what I do now. But for the people that are stuck as incumbents in their jobs, 
to not realize that you guys have options and to not actually create an environment. Like when people still make people clock in, why aren't they at their desk at in the morning? I'm like, cause they can get a job and wake up at 11 and probably crush it and make three times as much money. So if you're going to hang on to why aren't they at their desk at 8 a.m., don't be surprised if no one's applying for that job. That's a good point. Well, Swan, we want to thank you so much for your time. I feel like you gave a lot of great insight for our generation. You got, we feel like we learned a lot in this episode. Yeah, was, definitely. It was a great time. Maybe we'll have to run part two in person. That would be amazing. You know, we'll just fly out to one of your 88 countries that you're going around. <laughs> um, for, all of our, for all of our Juvie listeners, if you guys want to follow what Swan's doing day to day, all the links will be description. We'll leave some articles down there if you want to read more into what Swan is doing. Uh, Swan, thank you again for your time. That is a wrap. That is a wrap.